I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 39 of Caro Pop. Peter Holsapple is a fantastic songwriter who has been seen by far more people when performing with other artists than when playing his own material. He has a dedicated following of fans, including myself, who associate him with the excellent songs he wrote and sang for the DBs, a smart, tuneful band out of North Carolina via New York City. Highlights of the DB's 1981 debut album, Stands for Decibels, include Black and White and Big Brown Eyes. Every time I look into your big brown eyes, I get paralyzed, paralyzed. And the follow-up, Repercussion, includes such Apple would-be hits as Living a Lie and Neverland. After previous Carol Pop guest Chris Stamey left the band, Apple was the DB's sole leader, serving up such songs as Love is for Lovers, A Spy in the House of Love, and Think Too Hard. Think too hard. He later attracted more fans with the 1990s indie supergroup The Continental Drifters, which also included Vicki Peterson of the Bangles and Susan Cousel. But Holsapple has played in front of his largest audiences as a touring member of Hootie and the Blowfish, and before that, R.E.M. In 2019, Holsapple was performing before 20,000 people a night on Hootie and the Blowfish's reunion tour. When he and I spoke, he was about to embark on a solo house concert tour of his own material. How does each experience feel? He tells us. Peter Holsapple grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and was part of a cluster of young musician friends, including Stamey and future Let's Active leader Mitch Easter. They listened to Big Star and Move albums and made music together. Holsapple later would recommend that the up-and-coming band R.E.M. hire Easter to produce their first records. Stamey, Easter, and Holsapple were in the band Rittenhouse Square together, and Holsapple also played in a band with future Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers keyboardist Ben Montench, and another band called Little Diesel with future DB's drummer Will Rigby. Holsapple tended to be the guy who could play keyboards before he'd move on to guitar, which also happened when he joined the DB's. He was writing songs as well. The DB's had been Stamey's band with drummer Rigby and bassist Gene Holder. Did Holsapple expect to become an equal songwriter with Stamey? How does he think his and Stamey's songs complemented and contrasted with each other? In his memoir and Carol Pop interview, Stamey expresses mixed feelings about his contributions to the first two DB's albums. Does Holsapple feel similarly? What's the story behind Holsapple's darkly funny amplifier? Also, why were those first two DB's albums available in the U.S. only as imports, and why did Repercussion have more than one sequence? Always confused me. Stamey left the band after Repercussion, though he and Holsapple would reunite for three excellent duo albums, as well as a full DB's reunion album in 2012. Was Holsapple surprised at Stamey's departure? The DB's got a U.S. record deal for its third album, Like This, and more great songs and complications would follow. Peter Holsapple is an excellent talker as well as songwriter, so this conversation will appear in two parts. Here in part one, you'll hear many deep insights and colorful stories about the creative life of a songwriter. He released a new song, Cancelled, late last year. He got cancelled in a big way, caught saying something he shouldn't say. With a microphone recording to line the crowd to be does recording albums still feel viable to him? Does he write songs regardless of whether he has a project pending? Please enjoy Peter Hulsapple on Carol Pop.
you and Chris and and Mitch uh, Easter all knew each other when you were quite young. Did you did you feel like you were kind of this like musical sort of club where you just kind of liked stuff that was more you know the, what other people weren't as into you know at that point that you guys were into the move and big star and that was unusual. I think we took comfort in finding each other. Chris and Mitch were friends from birth, so they go much further back. But um, even before I met Mitch and before I met Chris, I found that my brother's taste in music was filtering down to me. He's the one that leaned into me and said, I think you should turn on uh, Ed Sullivan this weekend and watch this band from England. I think you're going to really like them. And, and I did, and it changed everything. So, but he also gave me the first left bank album. He gave me, um, wild honey, uh, smiley smile and friends by the beach boys. He gave me projections by the blues project. Um, I had discovered that I really loved the kinks. I had discovered that I really loved the love and spoonful. And so, you know, I was gravitating towards stuff. And then we found a radio station called WCFL in Chicago. And we listened to what was then called clear channel, uh, a show called Ron Britton's subterranean circus. And Ron Britton played all this underground music. And that's where I first heard John Mayall and the blues breakers. And that's where I first really? heard Paul, Paul Butterfield blues band on and WCFL. Yes. Wow. And that's like that. You could hear it on Sunday nights if you tuned in your radio very carefully. And so by God, we did. And then Chris heard Big Star on our local AM station, W-A-I-R. He heard One My Baby's Beside Me, I guess, when they were really somebody at Ardent was trying to work the record. So he actually is one of the people, one of the few people that heard Big Star on AM radio when it was new. And he played it for us. And we were all just like, wow, that's what we've been waiting for, you know, because music at that point was like 1971, 72. Things were getting more heavy. We like heavy stuff too. You know, hell, I still play Hawkwind, you know, (laughs) but um, there was something really resonant about Big Star and we all heard it and we all loved it and we all wanted to play it. And our friends all liked it. And it just kind of started working out like rings of a drop of water, you know, to spread through the pond. And uh, we had a great pond of musicians of, you know, probably 50 or 60 players when I was in high school and all in different bands. And we would all shift around to different bands. And, you know, most of those people who are still with us today are still playing music, which I think says a lot too. But all of those folks took Big Star to heart. You know, I would be hard pressed to find anybody among our friends who didn't think those first two Big Star records were just remarkable pieces of work, you know? Mm. And so you were in uh, a version of Rittenhouse Square, uh, and then also you had a band Little Diesel. What was your role in those bands? Well, I was young and had just gotten back from prep school. I spent a year at Phillips Exeter Academy 
in Exeter, New Hampshire, and was not suited for the prep school life, although generations of Hull's apples before me were, apparently. Anyway, it's got to stop somewhere, right? <laughs> so I came back and uh, Bobby Locke, who had had two incarnations of Rittenhouse Square prior, one of which that had Mitch in it, that was kind of the local supergroup, and they could do yours is no disgrace, note for note, you know, and they could do just amazing stuff. And they had like two skilled guitar players, a really the best bass player in town, a, an okay organist who had a lot of gear and a lead singer. And so they could do three or four part harmonies and stuff. So that was really cool. And then when I got back, that group imploded. Mitch and Bobby called Chris and me. And so I started and I was basically the piano player and vocalist. And I used Mitch's Honer Pianet. And that was a lot of fun. And then I played some guitar, too. And then I started playing more guitar and started writing songs. And Mitch had been writing songs and Chris started writing songs. We went into Crescent City Sound Recording Studios in Greensboro, uh, Easter weekend and cut six songs and had a pressing of 500 copies of the Rittenhouse Square record made. And I am often fond of saying that that record is considered a collector's item by people who have never heard it. Um, to me, it is emblematic of why it helps to get a little bit of mileage under your system before you make your first record. Um, but it's okay. You know, I mean, and then little diesel I joined because it became obvious when Bobby quit Rittenhouse and Mitch and Chris were really getting into their TAC 2340 tape recorders, their four tracks, and they were learning how to overdub and really get into that. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But you know, uh, and then my friend Will Rigby and my other friend Bob Northcott, who was the lead singer and guitar player, had a band called Little Diesel. And I, once again, got me a Wurlitzer electric piano and joined as the piano player um, and then moved the guitar. <laughs> This this is a this is a constant story in my career. I did the same thing when I joined the DBs. I went up to New York and auditioned as the keyboard player, and that lasted about two weeks. I've been a great entree to a lot of really killer jobs in my life. Did these bands just need guitarists more, or did you just sort of move over on your own? No, I just got impatient. You know, I'm when I was in prep school, um, the two bands that I had. The first one was with. Uh, Ben Montench from Pompetti's band on keyboards because obviously he could play piano and he played great piano. And then the second semester, he's like, I'm tired of sitting behind the piano. I need to get up. I want to play. And so he played bass in that band and that was cool. And he was great on that, but I totally understand, you know, every job that I've had playing keyboards, uh, I do tend to gravitate back to guitar and stringed instrument because I just feel more conversed with them, I guess. So at the time in those early days and you're, you're starting to write songs, were you writing them on the keyboard? Were you writing them on the guitar, writing them guitar. while taking walks? Guitar mostly. Um, you know, there were 
reams and reams of lyrics that never got finished. Obviously, I tried to think out loud and I tried to write down when I was thinking of stuff. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it was just discarded, you know. But when they did finally become songs, they were okay. You know, Little Diesel recorded two of them uh, on our record that came out eventually in 2004, I think, on Telstar Records. Um, that was a record we recorded in Chris Damey's bedroom, uh, amazingly enough. The five-piece band, uh, two guitars, bass, drums, um, our friend Chris Chamas, who eventually played drums in a second incarnation of the band, Chris Damey, and we had all these amps of Chris's. He had these little tiny Fender Tweed Champ amps, the ones that used to come with the lap steel and the packages in the 50s. And he had those like attached to his walls. So it was like, this is like a small bedroom. And so we cut a whole album of like 13 or 14 songs in there of all the, all the covers that we were doing, like the Blue Ash version of Any Time at All. And this adaptation of part of a... Uh, a Fairport Convention fiddle tune, and uh, uh, I Got a Line on You by Spirit, um, Pictures of Matchstick Men by Status Quo. We, you know, in both Rittenhouse Square and Little Diesel, we took an opportunity to play people songs that we thought maybe they wouldn't hear, which flew in the face of the aforementioned Allman Brothers and Marshall Tucker. Now, we did love Leonard Skinner because they had three guitars, and they did sound like the one band that had listened to the Yardbirds more than the Cream records. So, but um, both of those bands, I mean, I look at the list, I have a list of songs, a three-set show that Rittenhouse did. And yeah, you know, we did two songs by Jeff O'Tull, which we had to learn because people wanted to hear stuff. And we had to learn Midnight Rider to get with Hit Attractions booking. But everything else was like, you know, we played half of Shazam by The Move, including Cherry Blossom Clinic Revisited. Wow. We played... Uh, Did you do the voiceover parts too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was really great fun. Um, we uh, we did Teenage Head by Flame and Groovies. It was a from a new record, you know, we played stuff off of the first three Mata Hoople records when they were new. Um, you know, Little Diesel played, you know, we did, we did, uh, uh, Promised Land when Elvis had it as a single, because we just thought that was the shit that Elvis was finally doing a Chuck Berry song again. You know, we did uh, Jay Giles band. We did uh, Stooges. We did MC5. We did so much MC5 in both bands. You know, we adored the MC5. You know, I make a big deal out of Big Star, but MC5 really was the other side of the coin that we saw something in that band that turned a community around also. And they played in Winston-Salem. Unfortunately, I was not around. I was at Exeter seeing Ten Wheel Drive with Genia Ravon. Hmm. But, but MC5 played in Winston-Salem, and the people that went to see them were just, like, flattened. It's great stuff. I got to sit in with Wayne Kramer a few years ago and sing American Ruse with him. And fanboy Holzapple in his mid-60s was on cloud nine. Wow. And what a great guy Wayne Kramer is, a, really wonderful fellow when you were playing these songs in the band were you were you doing singing lead or were you kind of taking turns on who would sing the songs 
Rittenhouse, we all took turns, and none of us were really what you'd call stellar vocalists. Little Diesel had the inestimable power of Bob Northcott, who has always seemed like a cross between Iggy and uh, Barbara Streisand somehow. Wow. He had just... Singing, singing yours is no disgrace, right? No, this is the one that was singing um, MC5 songs. and oh, okay. Hall. No, the MC5, the other, the other band we were doing, the, the, yours is no disgrace was being done by the second incarnation of Rittenhouse. They Sorry, had a lead yes. singer, Michael Rothson. You know, you, you can't play the, you can't tell the just, players without a scorecard in this thing. I, I, I was, I, I jumped to the conclusion because I like the idea of Iggy, Barbara Streisand, and John Anderson as some sort of weird mashup. I hear you. Oh, yeah. No, Northcott is amazing singer. We uh, have been friends for, since third grade, you know, on and off, mostly on, and I am never never less than moved when I hear him sing. He's just a great singer. He's on a great record that came out last year called Be Good to Yourself, which is a charity record uh, put together by some of those Winston-Salem musicians. And it's to help uh, North Carolina musicians get affordable mental health care. And I'm on it, and they cut one of my songs, and Northcott sings a Terry Anderson song, uh, if you know Terry, who wrote Battleship Chains and has the wonderful band, The Oak Team, it's a great, great record. If you get a chance to hear it, it's well I'll worth it. I'll check it out. It's a, what, it's song, a, what song of yours is on there? Um, well, Britt Bazell did a version of Away With Love, which was on my first solo record, Out of, um, out of My Way, that came out in 1993. And he did a really good version of that. It's kind of more up-tempo, and, and it's an interesting version of it, for sure. With you and Chris and Mitch Easter, I've gotten this sense of how, like, you're growing up in the South where there's all this kind of Southern, you know, what's considered Southern rock at that point is, you know, Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner, and you guys are embracing Big Star, and it's almost like we've discovered this thing that the greater world hasn't discovered, or maybe you don't even realize they haven't because it's popular where you are. And in a way, you guys were like my Big Star, you know, just like some years later, Um because it was it was like you'd sort of share it with people and it was like oh these songs are great and you know wait till people hear them i'm glad we could be that for you you know a lot of people tell me stories of buying those expensive imports and believe me i know i worked in a record store in manhattan and they cost money to get into the stores and you had to mark them up but they would these people would tell me and I still hear this, that they would bring their copies to their college radio station and play them on their shifts so people would hear them. And a lot of people, you know, that we didn't have an American deal. So the groundswell of interest in the DBs was created by <laughs> folks like you who found something in those records that they wanted to share with their friends. And you know, uh, sure, it would have been great to have had the budget of the knack or something like that, or to, or at least to get something out on an American label. We didn't. It wasn't to be. Um, and we uh, are still very gratified with the ground 
work that everybody made for us. You know, that that's that's a lot. I know what it was like working in there, try, in that store, trying to sell copies of my record at sixteen ninety nine. Good Lord. You know, I mean, my, I don't think I paid that much for it, but uh, but maybe I don't know. Well, you know, it came with a, it was an Albion like repercussion. It came with like a cassette of the whole record yes. and yes. it had a different and it had a different running order than the one that I've seen later, because the later ones, which I think maybe were the original release had Living Alive first. And the one that I had had Happenstance first. But then the cassette sort of broke. I feel good into like two halves and like half of it was on one side and half was on the other. I know. You know, I will say this, that. Albion Records in London were really proactive in trying to market the DBs. They made the bean tin of the first record, which was sticking a cassette into a can. And it was great. They were able to get the front window of the Virgin Megastore on Oxford Circus with cans of DBs sitting there for however long that was. That's a coup, you know? Then they were doing the cassette on the outside of the British edition of repercussion. That was, I don't know. I had, I was, I remember that splitting up of, I feel good. Also, I have not heard it in years, but I had thought that their cassette had a blank side. And the idea was since home taping was killing music, apparently (laughs) little did we know um, (laughs) that you could record something on the other side so you could play stuff in your car i guess but yeah the um, the splitting of i feel good was kind of tragic the cover with the sort of black and white picture with the geometric shapes on the front uh is superimposed that's the copies that were released in america about three or four months before the one that you've got that malcolm garrett did that has the sort of trilon and perisphere scheme on it so which is the right running order in my estimation the original one that starts with living a lie that's that's the one that the cd has which is which i have yeah that's always been to me the right order you know it's like um you you're probably too young to remember how they used to reorder stuff on eight tracks and talk about cutting stuff in half you know but it's like any sort of semblance of order was thrown to the wind just because you had this amount of tape that you had for four tracks, four channels that would shift and you would have to fit the songs on with either the minimum amount of space of dead air or half of a song to be continued. Well, and the big star thing is is somewhat apt in that, you know, those records are number one record, Radio City. They really didn't get distributed here much either. Yet, you know, people like those songs have lasted and people have still discovered them and you kind of never really know. So, like, I feel, I feel like the DBs, those DBs records sound really good still. Like, I still listen to them all the time. And, you know, I, I like to think that on, on some level, that's what matters because it's, you know, people are going to come back to it and you'll hear like big brown eyes and you'll think that is just a perfect two minute pop song. Like you sort of can't do better in two minutes than big brown eyes, I think. Well, we um, think that the records still sound good, too. You know, a lot of energy and a lot of care went into the making of those records. Um, and I can lay a lot of that at the feet of Chris Stamey. 
Uh, he is a very exacting listener and he hears stuff that many of us would miss. In my career as a musician, I've been fortunate to have someone to rely on like Chris, who sweats the details where perhaps I wouldn't as much. Um, and same thing with Mavericks, the record that we did for RNA in 1993. That record still sounds great. That uh, Outside of the DBs, that's probably the most popular record that we did. So, um, you know, Chris is a Chris is a great producer. Also, he's done a lot of records. And so he knows what to listen for. He knows how to listen carefully. So I read uh, his memoir, Spy in the House of La- Loud, and uh, and I spoke with him as well. He he seems like he looks he looks on those those db's records those first two as almost like sort of like the kid pictures that you're not sure what you think about him anymore um i think he likes the sound of decibels more than repercussion but maybe i don't know like like he feels like he has sort of mixed feelings about that period and i'm wondering if you share that or whether you're more just enthusiastic about it oh no i think it's great i think all of the records that the db's have put out including uh the record from 2012 falling off the sky are great sounding records i mean would i go back and remix the sound of music oh yes i would um somehow if that was available to do but you know i think like this sounds fantastic i think all of our records sound fantastic and they were designed so that they bore repeated listening You know, that was very important to us is that a lot of records coming out when our first couple of records came out were very DIY and very noisy and rackety. And um, I don't want to say careless, but less careful if that's a reasonable thing. And so I don't know that they held up as well, but, you know. We're just we just were very fortunate, like I say, to have Chris at the helm of the audio and then getting Scott Litt in there for uh, producing repercussion and Chris Butler on the sound of music. And, you know, uh, we just we had a we had a good support team that heard something in our songs and felt that we could make a lasting record whether you know it's a crapshoot it's throwing the spaghetti against the wall to see if it sticks some sticks some doesn't you know we're very fortunate that we got a lot more attention than many of our peers you know who were absolutely as good and deserving but that's how it sorts out you know i think house concerts are probably what i want to try to do from here on out for the proverbial back 40, if you will. Um, I sense that it's the easiest way to get people that actually want to hear my songs in a small and intimate way of doing that, you know? And I think the songs are such that they need that kind of listenership. You know, it's harder to get it across, I think, these days in a bigger venue, you know, I mean, unless you've already sort of made your name. Um, I went to see Sylvanesso the other night, uh, if you know that band from Durham. And were tremendous. 
but it's a different kind of thing. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's so enveloping with the sound and great that way, but it's a little harder for a, a traditional rock band guy at age 66 to get that sort of excitement going. You know, we are judged on our earliest material anyway. So and shows will, these shows will be great because there'll be a lot of DBE songs for people. You've played in the Peter Holsapple combo and uh, Will Rigby's been the drummer on that. Is that defunct or will that still come up occasionally? That is defunct. Um, as of January 2020, I believe. And um, Will is now playing... In his wife's band, um, his wife is Florence Dore. She has a brand new record coming out called Highways and Rocket Ships that's on Propeller Sounds. And that's uh, a great record I got to play on. And Will's the drummer and Jeremy Chasky played bass and Mark Spencer from Sunvolt is all over it. And um, Don Dixon produced it and we did it at uh, Fidelitorium in Kernersville at Mitch Easter studio. So it was old home week and we had a great time doing it. Uh, it was the last session that Mitch had before the pandemic and the first session he had after the pandemic. So we are excited for Florence and Will is going to be out there playing with her in her band. So he's staying busy. He just played drums all over the Sarah Shook record also. So, but is the combo defunct because because of what Will's doing or because you've just been like, all right, this is, you know, it's enough of that? I decided that it would be better to stop the combo after it had kind of done what it was going to do. And, and for me, that was get out there, play these songs, play new songs, play the songs from my solo record game day that came out in 2018 sort of, you know, see what it's like as a three piece band. You know, I've always uh, relied on the kindness of lead guitar players in my career uh, because I've never seen myself as much of one. And in a three piece band, you kind of have to do that, you know, that's sort of, part of the sound. So I became an adequate lead guitar player, but I also realized that it's hard to trot a band around in the 21st century um, on a number of different levels. It's expensive. It's really expensive. The guarantees are not what they used to be. Um, The expenses are much more than they used to be. And you want to pay your musicians that are playing with you. And it just got to be where I couldn't do the math anymore. And I thought, well, I don't want to hang these guys up. Glenn Jones is a tremendous bass player and singer, and he is doing solo stuff and he's playing bass in a bunch of bands also. So he's staying busy. Um, But for me, it just seemed like, it was time to really concentrate on being able to play these songs in a more quiet iteration for my own mental health. I think, you know, it's not like I was out there trotting around a a hundred watt Marshall stack either, but it was loud and I don't know. Loud is loud is harder for me these days. I think. I, I, I feel like the songs also, even if they came from a loud perspective originally, 
should be able to be played quietly on an acoustic guitar if they're worth a damn. Well, you have a lot of your songs that have been in the full band presentation and then in these sort of stripped down acoustic uh, performances. Like, I mean, your album, Our Back Pages with Chris Stamey, recasts a lot of those DB songs and and other ones um, in that in that format. Which which sort of versions of those songs do you prefer at this point? Oh, I like them all. I'm really proud of everything that we've done. The DB's uh, catalog is in my estimation, pretty flawless. Uh, I don't hear many, uh, anything that makes me shake my head too much. Um, and, and yeah, those songs, I mean, that's why this is going to work with the acoustic house concert tour. Our back pages definitely showed that the songs have life left in them. Um, that's what you hope for when you write a song, that they will gain some sort of traction you know, if not to the degree of, of a success like, say, R.E.M. or the Go-Go's or, or somebody like that, um, at least the thousand true fans, you know, that are often brought up, um, that they know the songs, that they mean a lot to them. You know, I think that's always been the issue with, with us and with my songwriting is that not a lot of people know me, but the people that do know me, really like my stuff and that feels good um and i like the loud rock and roll stuff don't get me wrong i enjoy listening to it and i enjoy listening to db's records but as far as playing it these days i it's going to be more satisfying for me to just see if they can come across as i say in the acoustic format what was the what was the first song that you wrote that you thought oh this is actually a really good song I wrote a song for Rittenhouse called Livewire that is heavy, like mountain heavy, like Haystacks Balboa heavy. And somehow or other, I'd written songs up till then, you know, and we did a couple and we did one on the record called Like Wow. But until Livewire came along, I felt like, wow. I mean, that, that song really sort of changed things for me because it was arranged. It was obviously informed by playing with Mitch, whose songs were an education. I can still play songs of his that we worked up in Rittenhouse Square in 1971 that never got further than his demos, but I can still play them, you know, mm. Um and so that would have been the song, I think, that sort of turned things around. And then I took a break after freshman year in college from music because I had a girlfriend that said I should not be a musician, that I would never succeed and it would be pointless and that I should go into elementary education instead. So you wrote a song about her on your your latest album. Indeed, I did. And I actually heard from her as well. Um, but I, so I took that break and that was right when Chris put out the sneakers record with Will, you know, and I saw that and I was like, well, shit. Okay. There's something going on here. And I had written a couple of songs in freshman year and recorded because a friend had like a doe quarter four track. And so I was like, 
I wrote a song called Name on the Door and did a four track of that. And so I knew I could do this. I could do the parts thing because Mitch and Chris had been doing that. And I was no great drummer, but I learned drums in school. I guess Chris had moved to New York to play with the Erasers and then with Alex Chilton. And then I started doing demos with Mitch over at his place in Chapel Hill, where he and Faye Hunter lived. And he had the four track still, and he was getting to be a good drummer. So I would play guitar, Mitch would play drums. And I did about 18 or 19 songs uh, before I moved to Memphis briefly and then moved to New York. So I was armed with what I felt were more developed songs almost ready to go. Some of them were like Bad Reputation, which was pretty much ready to go. Some of them were like The Fight, which was also really ready to go. Um, but some will probably never see the light of day. That's all right. Um, when I got around to playing in the DBs, stuff like Big Brown Eyes and Black and White just came from whole cloth, you know? I mean, they were just ready to go. Amplifier came all together you know i felt very fortunate to have been whomped by the muse repeatedly when you were writing all those early songs were you thinking of them in terms of a peter hulse apple album eventually or that you would sort of play them with a band which you which you ended up doing i couldn't say i think i just wrote them because i had to write them i didn't really you know until i was in the dbs i didn't I mean, we had a band. Mitch and I had a band with Robert Keeley from Sneakers and Chris Chamas, who was my freshman roommate and also was a dear friend for many, many years from Winston-Salem. And, um, and it was called The H-Bombs. And so we did Mitch's songs and we did my songs. And again, no world-class vocalist in the ranks. So, you know, it was sort of like live demos of these songs that we had been recording. Um, and, and so I was able to see what they sounded like in that form. And then getting to play in the DBs, I got to have that outlet there. But when I, you know, and it's always been this way, is I don't know what's going to happen with a song. I hope it will find itself in capable hands, be that a great cover like Marty Jones or the Golden Palominos or somebody like that. Uh, or a band of mine with the DVs or the combo or the continental drifters or a solo record. But I don't have a destination in mind. What I have is the forcible need to evict it from my soul and get it onto paper and hopefully some recording format. So I don't forget it. <laughs> do you still do that? Oh Yeah. Because it was interesting, I was talking to uh, Robbie Folks, and he was basically saying he doesn't write unless he knows he has a project he has to do. And there are other people who are just like, no, I write because I have to write. Yeah, I'm the latter. I mean, I understand that. I, I, I finish songs. When do I finish songs? I finish songs when they feel like they have to be finished. But a, a lot of pieces are around in my studio. I have a lot of unsung tracks and i've had that for years that's a problem of mine is that lyrics are not always forthcoming um and i do tend to write music first um 
I put out a single on Bandcamp last year called Cancelled. That all came at once. And the recording of it all came at once. All the parts came at once. And it was so finished when it arrived that I had to do a straw poll among my friends who are Kinks fans to make sure that I hadn't ripped it off completely from uh, Ray Davies' song and was summarily told, no, no, that's just fine. You go right ahead. So I did. But it yeah, sounded- I, don't he- I don't hear a Ray Davies song in there. I mean, I hear the style, but it doesn't sound like a ripoff of anything. It was that piano part, you know, it's that that sort of Nicky Hopkins right. rolling piano in the choruses. But, you know, that song had to be written. And uh, a friend of mine said, you just had to put that out, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I did. You know, and it's not about how many hits I'm getting on YouTube and it's not about how many TikTok views I'm getting. I'm just doing it because I got to do it. And it wasn't like I'm going to hold this for the next album or I need to press up a bunch of singles and come up with a B-side. It was like I created a song. I recorded a song. I'm going to shoot the video and I'm just going to get it out there. I think at this point, the economical aspects of releasing stuff tells a lot about what you're going to be able to do. You have to sort of project sales i guess now i all i wanted to be was a songwriter and singer and guitar player i didn't realize that i had to be an actor and a and a and a business major as well but apparently all of this stuff goes part and parcel with the territory so but you know i mean i got boxes of records in my storage room of things that haven't sold and i'm sold out of stuff that i wish i had copies of and you know i just don't know quite how to do that kind of projection anymore. So I'm going to sell off inventory uh, and try to figure out what the next step is. I don't know that there's another album that needs to come out. I don't know who my audience is. I hope I'm going to find my audience again by going out on the house concert tour. I hope all of those people will stop by the merch table on their way out, you know, or go to my website or whatever the, my band camp page um i just am out there trying to do reconnaissance at this point you know i'm 66 years old i've been doing this all my life my first band was when i was eight years old that's a long time to be playing music and i don't want to stop i have no reason to stop you know it's like it's like the song goes there's no reason to quit. So you better get used to it. You know, um, I just, uh, I get a lot out of it. I like interacting with people on a smaller level. Somebody asked me the other day, what's it like? It must be really great to play in front of 20,000 people referring to Hootie and the Blowfish shows that I've done over the years. And I immediately thought to our 2019 tour that was just tremendous victory lap for the band. And we played at, what is it called now? The former Walnut Creek Music Pavilion in Raleigh. And it was a dark night. It was a dark night. It wasn't stormy, but it was dark. And it was that situation where you could see the first rows and everybody underneath the 
enclosure and then you could start to see the people in the lawn seats and then it faded to black and it was just like this weird out of body experience of like how far does this go and then can you how do you connect with anybody that far back there and do you and they're looking at screens you know i saw pictures of people that went to truest field to see mccartney in winston-salem a couple of weeks ago and you know if you were sitting in the back of the place you saw big screens of them and the, the little tiny people wandering around on the stage so i think that for me this house concert economy is going to tell me a lot about what i need to do next as far as remaining a thoughtful, viable songwriter and musician in 2022 and further on. Because I want to keep doing this. Like I say, I want people to buy tickets to shows. I want people to come out and hear me sing. I don't want to play to nobody. I've done that. I don't like that. I like being able to see people, even if it's 20,000 people and they fade to black. Yeah, what was your answer to the person who said how gratifying that must be to be playing to that many people with Hootie? I said, well, of course it's gratifying. Um, I served in an ancillary capacity. So the people that were there were absolutely there for the good Hootie vibes of their younger days. And they got that in droves. Um, they got great performances of all of those songs. But, you know, for me, it's always been that dichotomous life. I have played keyboards uh -huh, <laughs> uh, over and over again for people and guitar and mandolin and lap steel and bass and basically whatever people don't feel comfortable playing at any given time, I'm happy to put it on and try to squeak a sound out of it. But you know, it's not my songs that we're playing. I understand that. And I, I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had to play with R.E.M., to play with Hootie and the Blowfish, to record with people like the Indigo Girls and with uh, the Trogs. Oh, my God, you know, and the Cowsills. What a lucky guy I am to have gotten to do all that. I look at my Discogs page periodically, mostly to make sure that it's been updated. But, you know, <laughs> to the people that I've got, I mean, during the pandemic, I got to do online overdubs for so many great people, so many wonderful songwriters like Bruce Gordon and um, uh, this, this great band in England called It's Karma, It's Cool. And you know, lots and lots of people. And I, if you told me at 14 that I'd be making decent money playing accordion for people in Romania online, I would have laughed. And I'd said, yeah, like Big Star is going to be really popular at some point. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to be wrong on both counts. surprised when chris left the dvs no he tried to leave earlier um in fact we were going to go on a tour of england and he wrote a long letter to us that said 
So what we should do is Mitch should go out and play all my parts and I'll run sound for you guys. And we were like, eh, no, I don't think so. So he did that tour and then it was fairly evident that he was not feeling as challenged, I think, in the two guitars, bass, drums, sometime keyboard setup with two vocalists. Um, and it's evident because his first solo record was uh, using this experimental noise gate technology that he called the groove gate that would, when the when a drum triggered a noise gate, it would open a chord on a keyboard. So it was all very complex, but it was, uh, you know, he took that out on tour and that was about as far away from a DB's record as you could possibly get. And of course, we just sort of sank in a little further into the sort of almost more roots songwriting, I guess you would say. I mean, White Train is kind of proto-Americana, I guess, on like this. I don't know. We had been playing some of those songs with Chris uh, before he left, but, you know, he was ready to go. He, I, I can't help but feel that it probably was a little distressing after a while that all the single A sides that we put out were songs of mine. And he was sort of reduced to the B sides. And I hate that. And I would hate that that would be a factor in it, but I could certainly understand why it might be. I don't think we've ever talked about that, but. Yeah, it sounded like and from the book, I think he mentioned that his song Depth of Field was he was trying to get that on the album, but then nothing was wrong was on there and that that was sort of the the more immediate song. And you guys didn't want two songs that had that sort of slow vibe, you know, I am the cosmos kind of pacing thing going on. So so I don't know, you know, that, that there, there wasn't uh, enough yeah. room for both of you all the time. It's true. You know, I don't think anybody ever went through a, oh, well, Peter wrote a fast song. I better write a slow song. Oh, Peter wrote a slow song. I better write this mid-tempo song. And, you know, and, and when we were putting the candidates together for repercussion, that song, Depth of Field, was such a great song, and we loved it. But it's true that everybody seemed to really want to put Nothing is wrong on there instead. Now we had done nothing is wrong, and that in demo form has shown up in a couple of different records, uh, like the on what, Ride the Wild Tom Tom that Rhino put out, and then the compilation that Propeller Sounds put out last year called I Thought You Wanted to Know, 1978 to 1981. And the demo version is definitely a lot more big star Chris Bell. Uh, there's a lot more guitars and what have you. Now, the repercussion version, I have uh, often buttonholed Scott Litt and said, you've ruined this song with that Hammond organ on there. But ultimately, that's the version that's gotten liked. You know, more people heard that. And that got used in a movie called Margot at the Wedding many years ago with... Uh, 
Jack Black. And uh, so, you know, what do I know? I just, uh, I like the, I like the demo version still the best. Uh, and so I think we did a great version of Depth of Field. Uh, and I hope that sees the light of day one day too. So when you're joining the DBs um, and you've got songs like Fight and uh, Bad Reputation, didn't when you joined the band, did you think you were going to be kind of a, an equal singer songwriter in there? Cause you know, or did you think you were sort of coming in as the keyboardist to help out Chris Damey's band? Well, when I came in, it was Chris Damey and the DBs and I came up at Will's request to audition on keyboards. And we went to a rehearsal studio, I think the afternoon that I came in and I was hungover and needed a shower. <laughs> it was not a pretty sight, but <laughs> I had worked on Chris's songs. I knew what they were, you know, they were doing Let's Live for Today by the Grassroots, and that was fun. And I immediately found a part for that. And we had Chris's, or Chris had an organ. Chris had a uh, an Ace Tone Top One organ, this little red job with the rocker switch on it, and, you know, vibrato and about four different stops and the bass tone that would change for the left and left hand. And, you know, I got used to that. And, um, and so the first few shows, we spent rehearsing for we had a show at irving plaza where it was the flesh tones the Zantes, which is billy miller and uh miriam Lina from kicks magazine and norton records and then us chris damien the dbs uh the cyclones which was dan reich and donna esposito and a group called us ape that was the late tom goodkind and we were not good. We were like a spindly baby deer trying to stand up, <laughs> stay up. And we couldn't. And there are pictures that were taken after the show. And we looked like somebody had shot our pets. And so we went <laughs> back in and we really took a good look at it and tried to figure out what we did wrong. And we knew that we needed to practice more. And then we started really doing several nights a week of rehearsal. And it really showed the next time we were out. And I think by that time, it became obvious when I brought a song in like Big Brown Eyes or Black and White, that I was probably going to need to play some guitar too. So I did. But, you know, it, 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 I spent half of my time playing keyboards and half my time playing guitar. Was Chris happy to have a co-songwriter in the band? I think so. I think he liked my songs like I liked his. We've both been really big fans of each other's writing ever since we started writing, you know? I mean, Chris has written some of my favorite songs in the world. Um, there's a song he's called From the Word Go, from his... Uh, solo record from A&M Records called um, It's All Right. And I think it's just an extraordinary song. And we actually got to do it again at a, uh, at a show uh, a few weeks ago where I backed him up. I played guitar uh, mostly on his newer songs, which are kind of more in the jazz, 
construction. There's a lot of major seventh chords and ninths and, uh, you know, um, stuff that's outside of my comfort zone. But it was good. You know, once again, Chris's writing challenges me and it always has. And I have to figure out how to play it and learn how to do the right thing. And so I think that coming in, he knew that I would happily try to find parts that he liked. And I would also try to come up with parts that were playable and good and really added to the song. You know, I refer to Mitch as a kind of tabula rasa as a producer, because he is one of those folks that if you know what you want, he'll help you get it. If you don't know what you want, he'll help you figure that out and give you really salient ideas. So, you know, we've all provided that for each other over the years. And I, I've, I, I appreciate that. You know, I think that's, that there's a group of people that all think along the same lines. And it's been nice to have that kind of unspoken ability. You know, on the other hand, the DBs probably would have broken up a year before if we'd ever bothered to talk about it. The two of your songs just, they, they really sort of complemented each other. And like both of those albums, you know, you go from one to the other and it's just kind of these nice little scene shifts, um, you know, in the way that like, I mean, I've always been like a band's person so i always appreciate that you know you listen to a beatles album and you got the paul song and then the john song and then there's a george song and you know with you guys too there are these you're both doing songs that are really accessible and intriguing but they also have their own characteristics to them like what do you think it was about the two of you that was really complimentary and has sort of worked over so many years you know in the dbs and then on your you know the just the duo duo albums you've done well, if there's a simple way to explain it, I would say that Chris's songs, I think, are more elegantly constructed. I think a lot of what goes into his work is given a lot of thought before it becomes a song, both in lyrics and in chord changes. And I think mine may be more like these explosions of emotion. Um, and I, I, which is not to say Chris's songs are not emotionally birthed, because I know they are. I know him well enough to know that. Um, but we have a different style, I think. I don't get the feeling he approaches writing like I do. I think mine is, a lot of mine is, again, taking place as far away from musical instruments or a notebook with a pen as humanly possible, which is grossly, um, it's inconvenient to say the least, you know, I mean, I'd like to be able to make a note of it. I mean, it's been very handy to have uh, music memos on my phone now that I can hum into that or something. But, um, but I, you know, again, I think over the years that our songs work well together because we offer the listener different but complementary factions factors i guess I'm, I'm having a really hard time saying this without you know there's been a lot of like oh yeah peter's mccartney and uh chris is lennon or peter's no. colin molding and chris is andy partridge or you know that sort of pigeonholing. I mean, I don't see that. I don't think it's as simple as that. You know, I think that we 
both are informed by the same stuff. We listen to the same stuff. We listened carefully to the same stuff. We really love the same stuff. Um, but, you know, I mean, then there's Mitch's songs. And what does that have to do with me and Chris? You know, that's also a part of the factors that we're dealing with. And then there's Will, who finally got a song on a record. And that's great. You know, he may be the best songwriter in the bunch. <laughs> um, I highly recommend to people finding copies of his solo record, uh, Paradoxaholic, which is just brilliant. Start to finish. Not a not a clunker in the bunch. So, um, I, like I say, I don't know the easy way to explain the difference between Chris and my songwriting, but I do think that it does satisfy the same audience in different ways, which is really handy for us being in a band. You know, we've always done that. And I think it's what's funny about Mavericks is that in a lot of ways, the roles may have shifted a little bit. Um, he kind of did some of the more all out rockers and I did things like anymore, which is kind of, you know, weird five, four time. I wrote a songwriting book with a Chicago musician named Steve Dawson some years ago. And the first chunk of it is this dialogue about songwriting. And one of the questions I ask and we discuss is how much music theory you need to know. And, uh, you know, Chris is someone who obviously believes that, you know, you should have as much knowledge as possible. And when he discusses music, he discusses it on terms that are very, like he knows exactly what, quarter changes are happening and why they're happening and what the shifts are and everything else. And then the next week I talked to Jeff Murphy of shoes and and they were like, we, you know, it was all on instinct and, you know, we couldn't write, you know, down what we were doing to save our lives. And it's interesting that you have those two different approaches, but they both result in great songs and yeah, they're just like different ways to come about it. Um, but yeah, Chris certainly is someone who knows exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. Chris, uh, did study composition under Dr. Roger Hannay at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill when he was an undergraduate. Um, he can read music. He can write music. He writes string arrangements. He writes horn arrangements. I have never been able to learn to read music. I can read chord charts sometimes. <laughs> Some of Chris's require a little bit of work figuring them out, but you know, to that end, it's okay to have those two different types of songwriters in the same band, uh, especially, like I say, when it's all informed by the same roots of Beatles and Big Star and the move and, you know, top 40 radio. And I just, you know, I have learned so much from listening to Chris's stuff. I've learned so much from learning to play Chris and Mitch's songs over the years. Um, it's been a masterclass. You know, I learned so much about singing by being in a band with Vicki Peterson and Susan Cowsill for 10 years that I could have never learned in the, B the DBs or any prior bands that made me come out of that group feeling like, oh, I could sing lead in a band. Oh, excuse me. I just did. Um, and, you know, so in my world as a musician and a songwriter, it's been like what they tell you about tennis. It's always good to play better, play with somebody better than you. 
and your game will improve, you'll have to rise to that. And so in all of these groups, I've had to rise to the occasion because I suffer from uh, imposter syndrome that one day somebody will realize that I've been faking it all along and then I'll be exposed for the ruse and uh, charlatan that I truly am. Which is a common, common malady. Uh, but I am grateful for the time that all of these people have taken with me to help me become a better songwriter and help me become a better musician, better singer. You know, I, I love it. I feel fortunate to have this as a way of life that I've been able to have a living as a musician. So many people don't that are so deserving. So many people died along the way. I'm grateful I didn't do that either, you know? That's all for episode 39 of Carol Pop. Thanks to Peter Holsapple for his generosity and candor as he dug deep into his long, wonderful career. You can hear some of his music on peterholsapple.bandcamp.com and you should check out his blog, Does This Band Make Me Look Fat? at halfpairblog, that's H-A-L-F-P-E-A-R-B-L-O-G, dot blogspot.com. Much of the DEB's catalog is not in print or available in digital formats, but you can stream the excellent 1984 album like this on Apple Music, Spotify, and other outlets. A compilation of early DB's recordings I Thought You Wanted to Know also is available on the Propeller label. Please tune in next week for part two of this conversation, which will cover the making and distribution, or lack thereof, of the DB's albums like this and The Sound of Music, as well as Holesapple joining his old friends, R.E.M., as a featured player on the Green Tour and the subsequent album, Out of Time. We'll also talk about their falling out. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who knows how to work an amplifier with happy results. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week. Thanks.